Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMG Health Podcast. The publication of this podcast was funded by Novartis. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of Novartis. In this podcast, we have Dr. Sabana Chakravorty and Dr. Rachel Kesayadu discussing their highlights from ASH 2021 around sickle cell disease. With focuses on the progression of sickle cell disease over the last decade, clinical advancements, new treatments, and the latest research presented. Dr. Sabana Chakravorty is a pediatric hematologist with a special interest in the treatment and cure of hemoglobinopathy and other non-malignant disorders, including bone marrow failures. Sabana led the UK hemoglobinopathy peer reviews from 2018 to 2020. She is one of the clinical leads at the Southeast London and Southeast England Region Hemoglobinopathy Coordinating Centre for Sickle Cell Disease and a member of the Clinical Reference Group for Hemoglobinopathy, NHS England. She is a trustee of the British Society for Hematology and the UK Forum on Hemoglobin Disorders. Sabana is interested in clinical and molecular research in sickle cell disease and is involved in a number of projects at King's College London. Dr. Rachel Kessiadu is a consultant haematologist who graduated in medicine from Imperial College School of Medicine in 2002. She completed her specialist training in haematology at King's College Hospital in London in 2012. She was appointed to a consultant haematologist position at Guy's and St. Thomas Hospital, where she continues to work. She has a specialist interest in sickle cell disease and postgraduate medical education. Her particular areas of interest in sickle are cardiorespiratory, chronic pain and urological complications. She runs joint specialist clinics in these areas. She is involved in clinical research in sickle cell disease and is the training program director for haematology for SC London and is heavily involved in teaching and training of haematology specialist trainees. Hi Rachel, I'm just thinking about how fabulous this year's ASH was when it came to um, sickle cell disease and so many exciting things were discussed in, um, in ASH. I, um, I was so glad to be able to, um, you know, to access some of the, the stuff um, online. And uh, I thought we should just talk about the things that we felt quite excited about this time and sort of share it with, uh, with our listeners. Excellent. Yes, I, I have to agree with you. Well, one of the positives of the pandemic is that we can go to Ash even though we're in London, which was exciting. Um, so I guess the first session I wanted uh, to talk about was uh, one on the Friday chaired by uh, Birianda Riman, um, which although it covered old ground, I still found it really quite interesting um, and really quite educational. So they uh, had four speakers, all of them obviously had talks, and the very first one was uh, Dr. Cutler, who gave a bit of a background about sickle. So the stuff we all uh, hear over and over again in uh, sickle talks, but he angled it very slightly differently um, and focused a little bit about the high cost of healthcare um, uh, for sickle uh, to most economies. And uh, one of the numbers he created, which boggled my mind a bit, although in the UK we have similar, was that in the U US in uh, 2004, um, about a billion uh, US dollars was spent um, on hospitalizations, which just seems a huge amount. Um, in the UK, obviously, we have something similar. So we have a number from 2010 to 2011, which I had cause to look up recently. And in that year, we spent uh, 18 and a half million, just over that amount, actually, on uh, about 6,000 sickle admissions. So sickle care is expensive. And I thought his talk uh, brought home why it is, all the various complications that uh, patients have. 
um, he in that session they also uh, sort of broke it up by having lots of clinical cases so a bit of a discussion which kept it uh, quite interactive um, helped focus the mind on the talks that uh, they were doing I, I really did enjoy it um, they uh, touched a bit uh, on stem cell transplant or the curative approaches for um, sickle disease and of course the difficulty there is uh, the donor, donor availability with only about 18% of patients being able to have a matched sibling donor, which is the best transplant a patients can have. Um, they touched a little bit on haploidentical donors, um, but also on things like cord, um, cord transplants and unrelated donors. Now, I wanted your view on that yeah. as being your area. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously, as you say, um, transplant curative, but sadly for sickle cell uh, disease, the um, the data from the unrelated donor transplants and the um, certainly, you know, both from cord as well as uh, peripheral blood stem cell has been really, really poor. So there's been huge numbers of, uh, so it's a really dismal outcome. So really, we are we're kind of faced with uh, very little in the way of options other than match sibling donor. And as you said, you know, a very small minority of patients will have um, sibling donors that are uh, willing avail um, and available to donate. Um, and that leaves you with, um, you know, with, with only the other option, which is haploidentical. I mean, haploidentical transplants does open up this whole, you know, floodgate of, of, of uh, potential donor availability. You know, everyone at least has either a parent or a sibling who may um, maybe a match if it's a sibling with parents or it's a guaranteed haploidentical match. Um, but of course, uh, you know, we um, we know that they, they comes with some um uh, some complications, et cetera, which again, I think currently lots of studies are working those things through. And I think it's a it's an option to be used across all ages. Um, and certainly that you know remains to be seen how the long-term effects of, of hepatitical transplants in uh, both in children as well as in adults pan out. I mean obviously the 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 idea of the hyperintical transplants obviously is very uh, very clever in the sense that you know you use um, post-transplant cyclophosphamide to, to get rid of the alloreactive T cells and sirolimus, and then you give uh, obviously pre-transplant uh, conditioning. Um, and uh, you know there are there are a number of ash, uh, uh, abstracts this time, which has kind of slightly manipulated the uh, the pre and post uh, uh, you know treatment for um, hyperidentical transplants to improve the outcome. So that we'll, we'll just you know we'll, I'm sure time will tell. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think cord, unrelated cord or unrelated any stem cell source, um, I think uh, is, is, is good for sickle cell. And I think those doors have now been, you know, firmly bolted uh, as, as far as sickle cell is concerned. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and then in that session as well, they uh, went over the, the the old therapy, so hydroxycarbamide and uh, transfusion therapy. And for the Americans, obviously, um, L-glutamine is an option. So they talked us through that, which in Europe, obviously, we don't have L-glutamine. But the, the one thing I found really useful about that session was actually when um, they went back and looked at the L-glutamine data and annualized uh, the uh, crises frequency, they showed that actually the L-glutamine uh, response was similar to what was shown 
in at um, in MSH for hydroxycarbamide and what has been shown for quinzaluzumab. So the reduction in pain episodes was about that sort of 40-45% mark, which I That's hadn't really got that from. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't got that from the original L-glutamine data. I, I hadn't thought the response was that great, but apparently 40%. Although, the main pro problem, of course, is the amount that you have to take and the expense. Absolutely. So adherence re remains a real issue with that drug, doesn't it? It really does. And I um, almost and then, hope they would. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Yeah. I was almost hope that they, you know, we would just be able to take not kind of you know um, pharmaceutical grade L-glutamine, but some sort of biosimilar, which would be significantly cheaper, which is already available in health stores to improve your muscle build. Um, <laughs> and something like that, if that could be used. But again, you know, as you say, I think to take, you know, buckets of L-glutamine every day would be yeah. something that we would struggle with when it comes to flies. Absolutely, absolutely. Then uh, Martini went on to talk a bit about the uh, what to us are still brand new therapies, but to the Americans, they have lots of experience with. So uh, they spoke a bit about Voxelator and Quinzaluzumab and who to use it in. Um, and it, it was useful to see some of the real world uh, data being presented uh, on how they're utilizing that in patients. And actually, some centers in America are actually combining uh, therapy. So the insurance um, insurance folk are allowing some centres to combine it, but not all. Uh, some people no. seem to struggle more to access it than others. And obviously, we're quite excited because these drugs are going to be available to our patients soon. And then, yeah. I mean, um, would be very interesting to see what what comes up. I mean, I'm quite interested that you say that they are now using polytherapy because I think that's kind of some almost a given, isn't it, in sickle cell? Where you well, would... that that's our hope. That's at home, yes. but the cost yeah. the cost of these drugs means yeah. that it's not a given. Yeah. No, even if it's uh, when it comes to hydroxycarbamide and, and treat it, treat patients on hydroxycarbamide with something else is almost a given, isn't it? It's like, you yes. know, we do polypharmacy yes. in every other aspect. You know, if you look at hypertension, if you look at, you know, yeah. any, you know, cardiac disease, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, uh, people do not mind taking more than one drug to control their disease. So I think if we, we might have to accept that people will be on more than and and you know it's so exciting to even have that option you know i know i know and yeah. we'll obviously come back to queen's luzumab uh later on in our chats um because there's obviously some quite exciting uh, things happening with that drug at the current time uh and then at the end of this session uh santosh saraf then presented a bit about the exciting new potentials and uh the new kids on the block the the very exciting new kids on the block the yeah. uh, pk activators uh, got their day in the light. Um, so, so he presented uh, the, some of the initial uh, data, which we'll obviously come back to when we do the um, sessions that actually presented the real um, data on these drugs. But I have to say, I am really quite excited about what these drugs potentially are going to do. So the um, both atov atovopivat or mitapivat, I hope I'm saying this right, <laughs> both those sure drugs. Yeah. The early data would suggest that they are going to both improve hemoglobin as well as reduce pain. And if that carries through in the phase threes, I mean, they are going to be game changers, aren't they? They are. And, you know, um, in some ways, you know, it seems like these are, um, you know, these molecules appear to be these kind of super booster molecules that increase not only um, you know, not only reduces the 2 dpg which which allows you know the the oxygen, the hypoxia to be less, and the you know so that you know that the um, uh, hemoglobin precipitation is happening um, 
less or polymerization is happening less, but it also increases ATP. And yeah. so it kind of boosts the energy of individual red cells, which then causes the, you know, the, um, the damage to the red cells to be a bit better preserved. So in other words, you know, there's less, uh, there's more energy to kind of preserve the, uh, the integrity of the red cells, which means that you're hemolyzing less. Um, I, I'm obviously with the, um, you know, we, I, I really enjoyed listening to the sessions with this, these uh, oral abstract presentations that discussed the phase one and two trials. So maybe this is a good time to kind of talk to you about that. So uh, Julia Shu, she talked about the uh, phase one dose escalation study of Mitapivad, which is the AGIOS study, AG348. And she uh, talked about how, um, so basically she reported on the uh, phase one dose escalation study. And there were 17 uh, patients, this, this was a, uh, a sickle patient uh, dose escalation study, and they used um, several uh, uh, stages of doses um, for two weeks each, and then had a 12 to 15 day drug taper. And it's quite interesting that they chose to um, do that was because there was one, uh, I think in the very early on, uh, one of the patients had a had an adverse effect as soon as they stopped the metapivat. So they then decided to factor in a taper and stop element into their study. Um, and actually uh, they were able to, because of this was just a kind of phase one um, study. So they were not looking at, uh, you know, what it does in terms of outcomes, but essentially they were looking at everything else that goes with these the drug levels. So the dose dependent to the 2,3-DPG. So going back to 2,3-DPG levels, the, you know, the more this decrease, those decrease of 2,3-DPG, so that was all related to the drugs. And they found uh, that, you know, 50-BD, I think, was uh, what they kind of decided would be the, the optimum uh, dose. And the mean hemoglobin increase in 50-BD was 1.2 grams per deciliter, so 12 milligram, uh, uh, 12 grams per liter in, in, in British currency. Um, and... Um, and actually, more than half of these individuals with sickle cell disease actually uh, experience that increase in, in, in hemoglobin. Now, isolated increase in hemoglobin uh, will have its users in sickle cell disease. But on top of that, if you are reducing polymerization, if you're improving red cell membrane integrity, there will be additional benefits of, of, uh, of this uh, compound. So it'll be, it'll be very exciting to see going forward what the phase two, uh, three studies shows. Um, I was going to also quickly mention um, Itabopivat as well. <laughs> I'm glad you and, struggle with the name too. <laughs> Itabopivat. I mean, we're going to have to get used to these names. But yes, we are. Um, uh, so that was another phase one randomized. So this was slightly, I thought that it's quite interesting how they, there was a phase one study, but it was a randomized control study. So it kind of slightly strange way of, of, of designing the study, but that's the way it was. Um, and so they did 300 or 600 milligrams of the tamoprivat for two weeks. And then, so that was the initial, and then 400 milligrams for up to 12 weeks. So they uh, they gave that to, to patients. And then they, they studied a number of sort of downstream effects of that. Uh, so just physiological, biochemical downstream effects of that treatment. And what they found that, you know, as expected. So they used uh, the elongation index uh, on the, on um and the deformability of the red cells, and they were able to demonstrate that there was, you know, the red cells were more deformable. And also, they they looked at the antioxidant capacity. You know, they they measured the the um, oxidant 
um, molecules, you know, um, and that was reduced. And also they, uh, in, the red cells survived longer and anemia was better. Um, and they also were able to demonstrate that the, um, the reticulocyte counts dropped, so it was you know, downstream from reduced hemolysis. And also the red cell surface, uh, when they measured the amount of phosphatidylserine uh, expression on the red cell surface, they found that that was reduced as well, clearly meaning that you know, the red cell integrity is, is maintained. Um, so probably I, slightly less stickier as well, isn't it, is the hope? Less yes. likely to vasoclude, yeah. yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, and, it, you know, it was well tolerated. It, you know, hemoglobin went up, uh, you know, significantly, uh, at least by one gram, one gram per deciliter for the vast majority of patients. Um, so we'll, we remain to see whether this would actually, in the phase uh, three study, uh, it'll, just, it'll be interesting to see what their, um, you know, outcome what they define their primary outcome of their phase three study. You know, are they going to simply go, well, we're only going to measure the, the outcome in terms of the hemoglobin rise. Um, I think there was somewhere I heard in this conference, I can't remember where, that they were planning to measure both uh, the hemoglobin rise as, a, as an outcome, as well as the reduction in pain as an outcome. So ideally, that's what you want, don't you? You want your patients, you want to be able to say to your patient, well, take this molecule, this is going to reduce your pain, which is which is, you know, obviously what we could say for presenters, but uh, not so far for, for anything else, apart from hypersteria, of course. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. The, in that same session, they had um, that sort of sub-study of the REACH study, um, which I found quite interesting. So th this was, they went back and looked at how much um, starting hydrea in the sub-Saharan African population had reduced transfusions. And I, I that, thought that was, that was really amazing. good. It was really good analysis of the data. I mean, reducing uh, the I have this written down because I could remember it off the top of my head, but they reduced transfusions by 43.3 per 100 patient years. Um, and in Africa, we're getting blood, not just the right blood, but getting blood that is um, high quality is so difficult. I think this is this is really, really exciting data. And useful for us too. So our patients who don't want transfusions or who we can't transfuse is another thing to use to try and encourage them to go on good old hydroxy. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was really good. That was good and you know I um, I found it really interesting that they chose, that Ash chose to, um, and it, I think it was commented upon as well in the in the conference that they chose to use uh, this talk uh, or place this talk in the new therapy for sickle cell disease which I thought yes. was really good yes. because obviously this is new for Africa. Yeah. And what, uh, what, uh, you know, and we've in the last, last two or three years, or maybe a slightly longer, we've seen so many new studies come out of Africa, haven't we? I know the fact that hydroxyurea is safe to be given in the African context. It, you know, you can give high doses, you can give maximum tolerated doses with minimum uh, follow-up in children. The fact that they have less, um, and even you know, the children on hydroxyurea tend, you know, the incidence of malaria. Um, I know that that was just counter to what you'd expect. You yeah. would expect, and I think yeah. that's what the um, obviously this was not presented in this study, but I mean, there is now increasing amount of sort of you know, salut salutary things about hydroxyurea in the African context that we can say to our patients. And like you said, you know, another thing to say to the, the patients, I, I find my patients really, our parents of my patients really. Um, like the idea that it can, it is now increasingly being used, used not just in Europe, or Western Europe and America, but also in Africa. What yeah. did you think of the, um, this, um, the, the other one? I think we were going to, 
I was going to briefly mention also the uh, chrysalisma, but of course we can we can talk about that. Sort of yeah, yeah. So yeah. Solis Solis yeah. Kids, yeah. Mahini, I think yeah. Mahini was somewhat. I think it was Mahini presented uh, the initial yeah. findings from this, and it seems to Chris is going to do in children what it's doing in adults in essence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think the main thing is of course the infusion related reactions, etc., and how it's going to be tolerated. Um, and it seems like it's safe and well tolerated in children. Um, and, and as you say, it's similar kind of reduction in basically annualized vasoclusive episodes, uh, you know, reduction in, in episodes is, is, is good. It's uh, promising. And as you say, you know, there's that's an option. You know, that's something that we can now say. And I, I really like the fact that now people are um, actually conducting these studies uh, as soon as the adult studies are. Are finishing, you Completed, know, so that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that we can then don't have to wait for ages for the regulation, you know, before data is generated and leg- regulatory authorities then approve it for the use in, in children. In children so yeah. I think that's well, really the, helpful. That, it, it, it does only go down to 12, doesn't it? It's 12 to 18 does, solids, I think. Is, yeah. there are, no, there are the lower ones still ongoing. So okay. This was just the same. There were three parts. So they, um, the study is designed in a way that as you lower the as you know about one group is older okay. age group you, you go just down. take a drop yeah. down and then and yeah, it's the yeah. final ones from six months onwards i think so um i think they've, they've obviously stopped recruiting um the um yeah so 18, phase two, 18 to 12 yeah, i think is done 12 to 18 is now yeah. Yeah. It, is, it was reported on and then the next step's currently recruiting and then the yeah. one after that happen after so we will be potentially in the next few years hear more about what Elizabeth is doing for children um, from six months on. So but by then, I shall have lots of experience using it in my adult patients. I'll and be I able to share. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, should we talk about the poster walk, the sickle cell poster yes, walk? Yes, yes. That was, uh, it was interesting posters. And I like the way, having not done one of these, obviously, before, because we didn't have a pandemic before. I didn't go to Ash last year. Um, I thought that the poster walk thing was really rather nice, you know, the yeah, way it was, it was quite, uh, it, yeah. yeah. I, I, so I did it, like it. Yeah. So I, I I thought you might want to talk a bit about the uh, the poster that was selected about the children who oh, have had strokes without stroke vasculopathy. vasculopathy. Exactly. It was a very good poster. Yeah, I, it was a very good poster. It was, it was the French uh, study. Uh, it was. Which was... Uh, it was quite good. And in, in fact, you know, we've been talking about this for some time now that uh, obviously with the advent of the um, transcranial Doppler monitoring and very careful uh, following up of people and initiation treatment um, of children with abnormal transcranial Dopplers, we don't really see what, what was traditionally the more, you know, the, what was traditionally the common way of people presenting with stroke, mm-hmm. which would be a vasculopathy related, sort of acute ischemic stroke, et cetera, and then quite severe vasculopathy. We don't see that anymore, and we certainly um, are increasingly, well, I don't say don't see that. We, we do see that, but we don't see that often. What we see are these atypical uh, strokes without vasculopathy, and, and clearly they've, you know, they've obviously seen the same. And, and I think what they, what they you know, um, the, 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 the lady who presented it, I forget her name, but she was saying that um, I think they had 50% of their patient population uh, of the strokes, over 25 that had stroke. 50% had atypical stroke. So yes. they described the atypical stroke as somebody with a normal MRA, so no evidence of vasculopathy, normal transcranial Doppler, um, you know, before, during, and after the event. And we do see patients like that. 
and they are usually uh, associated with an acute complication. Uh, so either you know you've got um, you know very bad acute chest syndrome or something like that, which then causes some kind of uh, abnormality in the cerebral blood flow acutely, and then causes the the acute ischemic, ischemic stroke. And interestingly, she she commented that the posterior cerebral ischemic lesions were found in a significant uh, minority. So it was forty two percent of uh, of these atypical strokes were found in. Um, in the posterior circulation, which which is interesting actually, um, and and the other thing, um, uh, so it's basically you know it goes to show that uh, children with sickle cell disease, even if they don't have radiological fine abnormalities, I think to have a, even a transcranial Doppler or a radiological abnormality, the MRI abnormality of your blood vessels, um, is is a slightly progress is a progression, isn't there? So. Transcranial Doppler, you might uh, you know, be abnormal at an early stage, and having an abnormal uh, MRI is progressed further on from having an abnormal transcranial Doppler. It's possible that these children are have uh, you know sickle cell disease is causing them to have this abnormal vascular, you know, abnormal vascular re um, response to any kind of shifts in uh, within the circulation shifts in in cerebral vas uh, blood flow. Now, whether that is due to sickle cell disease. Or whether that is uh, something that also happens in non-sickle patients. There's somebody asked that question actually. I, I was going to say, I was. It's not. It's not that clear cut because what we don't yeah. know is the rate of stroke in their non-sickle population and how that compares. Yeah. Um, and yeah. a few of them, or at least at least one case, was a watershed um, yes. infarct from hyper, someone being very anemic, wasn't there? Anemic. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The management so is interesting. Yeah, and the management was very interesting. And in fact, we do the same, to be honest. So we, when somebody comes in with a, a stroke associated with an event which is not vasculopathy, so for instance, you know, if you've got a chest crisis or, or something, you know, you've had a few recently, you know, one poor child with a very uh, bad case of sepsis following eating a dodgy burger, it was as simple as that. Um, and then they um, went into very, very severe sepsis and then had a massive stroke. And then another fellow, a poor that he ended up with a very massive stroke following a very severe acute chest syndrome. And these children, you know, we tended to put keep them on transfusion for a short period of time. And then, you know, um, then we stopped it, to be honest, because, you know, if we because we obviously extensively investigate them for any vasculopathy, et cetera, um, any kind of patent for Amanavali, any, um, uh, you know, paradoxical embolism kind of thing in the context of uh, ischemic stroke, but if you don't find anything, if there is no trigger, then obviously there's no need. We obviously will convert them to hydroxycarbamide. So I thought that that was a that was a good study, and yeah. uh, we'll see what um, what uh, comes of it and and how they how they take it on. You know, in, in terms of the uh, in terms of the paper. Um, and also in that study, it also in that uh, session, we heard about more chrysanthemum, didn't we? With the oh with yes, Julie yes, Julie Cantor's um, presentation. Now, obviously, I was very interested in that presentation because we're about to give chrysanthemum in the UK. So, so it, it it was useful to hear what the real world experience with Chris was. Um, it was useful to understand that we we actually do need to. Uh, consent our patients properly to manage their expectations because as Julie pointed out 
sickle patients when they receive parenteral therapy are used to it doing something immediately and so uh, a third of the patients it would seem had discontinued therapy within three months some of them after a single infusion because having the infusion hadn't done anything immediately so that that I thought was really useful for us um, going into the next few weeks when we are going to be giving this patient and, yeah and how to manage expectations of absolutely absolutely yeah, so. absolutely but what was also useful to see was that uh, in the patients who did remain on the treatment and had had it for at least uh, I think it was 12 months they were seeing what you expected to see which is a reduction in the number of uh, pain episodes so um, it, it made me really quite hopeful and positive about the fact that we are going to be introducing this medication um, and we will need to take information from that into our consent processes in the clinic and make sure that our patients understand exactly what we expect this drug to do and when we expect them to see an effect. Um, it does make me slightly anxious about, I guess, the longer term, you know, if 30% are not on it a year after you've started, then one wonders what happens at year two, year three, year four, you know, that does make me a bit anxious, but I guess we'll collect the data um, yeah. as we go. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we uh, there were a couple of sort of uh, interesting uh, discussions about uh, other complications of. Um, oh right, of yeah, like the infusion reactions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah for the, for this as well, the infusion related, and and actually, as a matter of fact, if you boil down to it, only one patient, I think. Uh, so they were particularly focusing on the pain one day, and there was only one patient who ended up stopping the infusion. As a result of the pain oh, being yeah. being quite difficult to tolerate, so yeah. again, I guess that's uh, hopeful and that's in, important information to kind of relay onto our patients when we yeah. were when we were going to start that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so. The, there was uh, an abstract on um, an oh, well, not a presentation of a poster on vitamin D used to manage pain in children. Yeah, old hat, yeah. Old hat in adults, oh, I would yeah, say, so old exactly. hat in adults. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, we have extrapolated that old hat information from adults. We do try to, um, you know, make sure that our patients are replete. And, and in fact, they showed, um, you know, that uh, significant number of children in Tennessee. They, they're large numbers, though, you know, about nearly 800 patients. And 2,000 of them were vitamin D deficient. And this was, um, they had sort of longitudinal data, but they looked back um, at their vitamin D levels before and after they were admitted with pain events and, and, and did some statistical analysis and found that there were, uh, it was associated with, so there was some association with, with, uh, with vitamin D deficiency and pain events and people who tended to have more pain events tended to be more vitamin D deficient. So, it, you know, obviously it's, it's information that, again, is, is, is useful, um, you know, as, but as you said, you know, I think it's probably well known that that's been yeah, and then I guess that last one I wanted us to um, touch on was the um, quality of life uh, poster in the gene therapy patients. Um, what 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 oh, did yes, you make yes. of that one? Yeah, I, I think that was interesting because what they did was, um, I mean, obviously not everyone going into the gene therapy program uh, had poor quality of life compared to what the standard American quality of life metrics were, and it's interesting that people who had poor quality of life compared to standard um, actually showed a better um, improvement. So they made a better, uh, their kind of outcome post uh, gene therapy was uh, 
uh, in their sort of quality of life metrics were more improved than those who was already better. So um, yeah, well, that, that that's interesting because I think quality of life, uh, we don't do enough of it. And I know that people have, and almost all drug trials that happen now have a quality of life, um, you know, a component to all these trials. So it's really important to, uh, to be able to do that now. And then I guess my last question is, what was your take take home message? What what made you most excited about this, Ash? You know, I tell you, I was, you know, the number of sickle cell, uh, so two things that really struck me. One was that the amount of interest that most uh, organizations, including ASH itself, NIH, also some of these large consortia, large research organizations, hospital uh, groups have all really taken this concept of sort of finding cure, finding treatment both adults and children uh, in America really, really seriously. So it almost feels like, you know, it's, uh, it's taken this new life, new, new lease of life. And it was clear that th that, that kind of initiatives, which was taken sort of in pre-pandemic, you know, 2018, 2017, that kind of time, are reaping benefits. You know, we're seeing much more of those three, four years down the line, uh, you know, the benefit of, of, uh, of decent um, uh, yeah, funding of research. And so I really enjoyed the um, the session where they where they talked about uh, the novel uh, things that are going to come up and and just briefly you know I felt that you know obviously we've got we've talked about the, the transplant and and how we were doing more reduced intensity conditioning transplant to make it more um, uh, make it more tolerable for adult patients with sickle cell disease and pre -morbidity, uh, comorbidities. Um, also, there was lots and lots about gene therapy. Yeah. Um, so there's a gene various different so different types, various yeah. types, types yeah. using both sort of gene addition techniques so using a lenticular vector and using the vector and there's you know there's lots of different vectors have been used not just the lenticular the bluebird bio vector but um so there was a nice sort of overview on that there's new other few other things that i thought were interesting one was the focus on finding yet more you know uh, yet more both gene editing or gene therapy approaches to um to him you know uh, correcting the hemoglobin uh, disorder uh, but also the small molecules you know there was uh, excellent talks about really looking at the newer small molecules looking very carefully dissecting the uh, how uh, you know the hemoglobin um, f is um the expression of hemoglobin f is um it, you know can be changed through and how it is all, all constructed, how it is all sort of orchestrated, if you like, and going down, really doing very fine tooth comb analysis of all the various factors, transcription factors, other molecules, zinc fingers, all of the other, other molecules that can be used. The very, you know, really fine tooth dissecting the regulatory aspect of, of um, the hemoglobin switch and seeing how that can be affected, uh, how that can be used. The small molecules might be the new thing a few years down the line. And then sort of a lots of interesting real world questions using genomics, for instance. And the one thing that really I really liked and that uh, was, you know, obviously there's a new thing that we've all kind of recently talked about was the how the gene therapy trials um, they have had cases of epiphyllic leukemia. Yeah. And also the um, you know in the low in the reduced intensity conditioning trial transplants. Some of the patients that who rejected their their bone marrow and had to, you know, they, they weren't able to engraft. Um, 
developed AML MDS subsequently. And so there was that real concern about um, what happens in these patients and what what makes them uh, you know, progress onto these uh, myeloid leukemia AML and develop those mutations that, that drive these conditions. And so there were lots of discussions about how there is this constant lifelong stress erythropoiesis, yeah. um, how failing how failing to engraft then puts on further stress in terms of development, you know, you know, regenerating the erythropoiesis from a, you know, from not having any uh, to start with, following the uh, this, following this, how there might be a baseline increase, not absolute, but relative increase of increase of risk in developing AML and MDS in patients with sickle cell disease. Anyway, anyway yeah. Last or minor, you know, not hydroxyurea certainly is not the culprit here. Just as a lifelong exposure to chronic inflammation and you know, and oxidative stress and so on, um, and also the kind of you know, uh, the fact that uh, they did do quite detailed uh, molecular analysis of the gene therapy study and were able to prove that actually it wasn't the the gene therapy product itself that drove the AML. But it was possibly the susceptibility or the busulfan conditioning or anything else that went with the with the stu- uh, with the gene therapy that was causing it. So, you know that that kind of dyserythropoiesis um, and that kind of stressed erythropoiesis, etc., causing these kind of abnormalities is an interesting take. I I really enjoyed listening to some of those scientific uh, lectures. So take home excited by new uh, developments in the science excited by the possibility that new drugs are being developed, new techniques for gene therapy, gene editing, uh, bone marrow transplants. Uh, Really great to see so much being done in terms of investment in research in sickle cell with the definitive cure. Excited about African, um, you know, new uh, uh, data coming out of Africa, really high quality studies. Um, That was it. What was your take? Uh, not a huge amount to add to that, to be fair. Um, I, I, I think it is worth mentioning that what, one of the things that was really clear um, has been made increasingly clear over the last few years is the fact that you can run clinical trials in sickle cell patients. You can run clinical trials in sickle patients in sub-Saharan Africa. Actually, they're a very adherent group of patients. Um, and, and th- yeah, they're set up to, to help us um, build... Um, the evidence base for all the things that we we do in sickle and hopefully develop ways that um, can take accessible therapies back to where the disease where most of the disease lives basically because in a, a well resource setting um, we actually do not have the highest burden of patients at all um, so I, I was quite excited to see that um, abstracts were being accepted from these areas and oral presentations were being made to show that actually it's not all just in the high resource setting it is you know research is happening across the world I thought that was very and some good quality good. collaborations as well wasn't there absolutely. there was some really good quality collaborations absolutely the, the, the global north and the global south which was quite good to see yeah yeah um i i'm quite excited for the number of um uh, new therapies that are hopefully on the horizon you know we've actually got drugs in the clinic which um the, the story of ash for me is the first time i went to ash was back in 2008 and you had to scurry around to find where any sickle presentation was being held you know it definitely was not in any plenary session um and at that time if you wanted to do a presentation on uh, um clinical trials uh, on .gov 
in Zickle. I mean, there were a handful of things, whereas now, you know, pages and pages and there's so much coming into the clinic. Um, it's definitely an exciting time to be a Zickle doctor. But thank you very Fantastic. much for doing this with me. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yes, it was nice chatting to you. Thank you to Dr. Sabana Chakravorty and Dr. Rachel Cassiadou for such a great conversation covering the various presentations, abstracts and late-breaking research on sickle cell disease from ASH 2021. Remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. But for now, stay safe and stay well, and I hope to have you back again on the EMG Health Podcast very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.